podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. Our podcast is brought to you by That's a Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crusts that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's a Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292. Order online at thatsasum.com or download That's The Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. November 17th, Prostate Awareness Month, Diabetes Awareness Month. I'd like to give a shout-out to 73-year-old actor Danny DeVito, who was born this day, 1944, from Taxi and Batman fame. Um, On this day in history, 1970, Russia was the first country to land a robot on the moon. Today's guest is CEO of BioViva, a.k.a. Mama Bear, a.k.a. Patient Zero, Elizabeth Parrish. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? Good. I I would love to know where you got the mama bear, but sure, I'll own that. Nice. <clears throat> uh, you're here to discuss um, diabetes, which is a personal um, thing for you and your family, um, accelerated medicine, aging as a disease, and consensual gene therapy. I'd like to start with diabetes. Um, your son, Aiden, who played soccer for me as a um, young boy, has what type of diabetes? He has type 1 diabetes, so it's an autoimmune disorder. So what is a typical day of living with that? Yeah, so his his day is improved uh, vastly due to a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor, and a pump. Uh, but what it looked like for the first several years is uh, several uh, blood checks a day. He has to prick his finger and draw his blood and check to see what his blood sugar is, and multiple injections. And so <clears throat> the amount of injections of insulin a, a person might take with type 1 diabetes would go from every meal uh, to then correcting uh, their blood sugar throughout the day. So it might be 6 to 8 to, to 12 injections. So now he has a constant pump installed in him or something like that? Yeah, that's right. So 
The new pump uh, technology is is helpful. Uh, certainly, it's not the cure. It's still frustrating a device. It's replaced about every three days. And instead of actually counting up his carbs and, and various things that he did before, he just, uh, well, he still counts them up, but he he dials them into the pump. And then the pump gives him the right amount of insulin. And then it also gives him bolus insulin. So for a average type 1 diabetic, they take multiple shots every day, but they also take another shot that is a long-lasting basal insulin. And so what it would do is, is keep his blood as even as possible through a 24-hour period. The pump does all of those things. So uh, you have the inconvenience of changing it every three days, and you have the inconvenience of maybe needing to take it off for sports, uh, which he does, and showers. Uh, but otherwise, it, it's uh, definitely an improvement. Again, uh, I'm not happy with it. I'm not going to be satisfied until there's a cure. So it's like a, a semi-permanent attachment to the body? And is that around the stomach area or something? Yeah. These, you can put them in various fatty tissue areas. Uh, essentially, when you change it, every three days you put in a new site. So you 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 take this um, arrangement of tubing. It's called a cannula. It has a needle. And we inject a new site every three days. And then that tubing connects to his pump. So it has to be alternated um, for him every three days. But it's a very small needle and a very small tube, uh, they have made uh, diabetes more comfortable, certainly, for patients. Then the CGM that's on his arm, the continuous glucose monitor, actually gives us a reading in time. So right now, we could look and see what his blood sugar is. And um, that's really helpful for me because I travel all around the world. I'm gone much of the year, and I'm able to call in uh, morning, noon, and night and say, hey, you need to correct your blood sugar or it looks like you're going low. And it's been a real lifesaver. What are the ramifications once that hits a low point? Well, the, the, that's the thing. So a high blood sugar can be very dangerous. It, it could actually be uh, deadly. He could go into a seizure if it gets extremely high. Uh, but diabetics tend to live with high blood sugars for a long time, and they're a detriment to their organs. They, they break their organs down and create damage in the body. Uh, it accelerate damage in the body uh, for young people and uh, all throughout their aging. So you definitely want to avoid them. A low blood sugar is... is is deadly, uh, though absolutely that this is this is the fear in diabetes. Every day, every time you give insulin, um, it is. Um, it's a very dangerous uh, hormone, right? So if we give him too much insulin, um, you know, the he could die. Wow! And he was born with this. No, he actually got this when he was diagnosed when he was nine years old. He was probably born with a genetic predisposition to get it, uh, but he was not born with it uh, per se. It's an autoimmune disorder. So at some point, his body saw a virus, a virus that was either exposed in his genome or from uh, outside consequences like an infectious uh uh, disease. And um, his immune system is a very diligent immune system. As a matter of fact, Aiden was a kid that rarely got sick. If he got sick, it was only momentarily. And what his thymus was doing and his uh, uh, B cells and his T cells were, they were eradicating everything they saw very quickly. And what happened is they became unregulated and something that he 
got uh, looked too close to a human tissue or his immune cell made something that would fit uh, something too close to his own human tissues and then his body attacked his pancreas as if it was the virus. So I'm hoping I made that clear. So your immune system modulates and regulates. And as we get older, we have problems with the immune system. We'll talk about that later. But with a type 1 diabetic, the immune system is just scavenging. It's doing the best it can. And think of it as like Legos. It's making a Lego construction that will fit the virus so that it can eradicate it. And unfortunately, he made one too close to his own cells and his body attacked his own cells and eradicated them. Wow. Um, you said one word I'm not familiar with, thymus. Thymus, yes. So this is one of the interesting things uh, when we talk about aging. So thymus involution is something that happens to you over time. So your thymus is a regulatory organ that helps with much of your immune system. And actually, it deteriorates as we get older. And by the time we're about 14, it actually starts deteriorating. And um, there are groups right now that are working on uh, regrowing the thymus for, for older people. Uh, so this, this is part of our regulatory system for our immune system. So that would benefit people that had compromised immune systems at an older age? It would benefit all of us, yeah. Maybe clone or regenerate the thymus? Yeah. Actually, there's a group in uh, California that's regenerating thymuses. Uh, people can get involved with them. I can't remember how much it costs. There is definitely a cost for it. And it's a, a combination of drugs. And they're actually showing that they're regrowing the thymus and that these people have less immune issues. So we have, uh, when you think about high risk groups, uh, when the, the influenza goes around, for instance, they're young children, and then there are the very elderly, right? And both of them are at risk of, of dying from uh, infectious disease. One, because they have an, an uh, immature immune system system and one because they have an old immune system that no longer is really uh, doing the things that it needs to do anymore. And um, this would be a treatment uh, for the, the aging uh, population uh, rather, than, rather than children. Children just need to actually mature their immune system. Yeah, diabetes is a huge problem. Um, I was looking over some stats from 2015. Apparently, there's over 30 million people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. with diabetes, 130,000 kids with it. Um, the shocking number to me was there's 85 million people with pre-diabetes. A lot of that's obesity-related. Uh, um, I talk about food and wellness on this show quite a bit, but 85 million people have pre-diabetes in America, and I'm sure that number has grown because our interest in changing our food culture has, has not caught up to sway that in a different perspective. Yeah, and I think one of the those those numbers are fantastic. Thank you for having those. Uh, one of the most important things that we talk about with people when we talk about diabetes is what are the different types of diabetes. One of the best educations that we can get is the difference between type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, and type 2 diabetes that has to do with weight, lifestyle, and aging. So even as you age, even thin people can come up with type 2 diabetes over a lifetime. But obesity and lifestyle has a lot to do with it. Now, as far as Aiden, you know, Aiden is, was 
a vegetarian almost his entire life. Uh, super sports, uh, super active. Um, yeah, he's he, not some fat kid smoking, no, not no. exercising, he, he's sitting not, on the he, couch. No, he's not a type 2 diabetic. So um, in order to educate the public, we, we really need to decipher what those two things are. So whenever you go to look up diabetes stats, and when I go to conferences, I'm so infuriated because they call type 2 diabetes diabetes because it's the diabetes that most people have. But in fact... Um, you know, the type 1 diabetics are, are rarely ever represented in there. And the only places that they actually cross is when type 2 diabetics become insulin dependent, uh, meaning that then their their form of treatment is similar and the same as type 1 diabetics. So there are two completely different uh, diseases. They just both have to deal with insulin production, and so they get clumped in. So the numbers are always uh, difficult to deal with that way. And education is difficult to deal with that way. I know that, you know, some kids would be like, oh, why don't you just eat better to Aiden? And he's like, ah, that's not it. I, that won't fix it. <laughs> um, I think of juvenile diabetes. That's, that gives me the impression that you're going to outgrow it. <laughs> yeah, juvenile onset diabetes. Yeah, that that does give you the impression that you will outgrow it. But in type one, you're you're not going to outgrow. We we will uh, manufacture a cure. Science will manufacture a cure. There's great things in the pipeline right now, uh, but it, this is not something, unfortunately. You can so is grow. juvenile diabetes different than? Uh, they, this is what, what they way? call type one diabetes when it's when it has a, a youth onset. Gotcha. Yeah. So you were calling it that for a while, and now you've shifted to diabetes. Well, it's always been type 1 and type 2, but juvenile onset is just the onset of type 1 at, at that young age, which which is when it does hit most people. There was a an ex-Sounders player uh, that recently got uh, type 1 diabetes, and he's in his 20s. Yeah, and Jordan Morris. Yeah, and Jordan Morris. Um, this, you know, that that is, it's really inspirational to Aiden. Actually, the the other player was saying how his game is actually better now uh, because he, you know, in the future, uh, many people will choose to have glucose monitoring. You know, we we are going to become very adept at our own health. We're going to want to know what's happening within us, especially as we age. And so, these technologies that we're using for these various diseases are actually going to have huge application to everyone and imagine you know if you were really monitoring and diligent with with your health and especially as you age you would know when what not to eat uh, when to eat and what affected your your body in the worst and the best ways and you know that this is the technology that we're moving for now more and more it's becoming non-invasive our apple watches and and various devices that people are putting on their bodies to understand their heart rate um, uh, to understand their level of activity. All of these things are just going to <clears throat> increase in, in awareness of the various things that are happening. And, and there are people working on glucose monitoring that would be much like a watch uh, and, and non-invasive without needles. Yeah, I, I preach it all the time. You, you cannot make improvements unless you measure things. That's right. And we talk about, I have difficulty counting calories, carbs. Those are two things that I can pay attention to my health. I have been blood mapping now for three years. Every 90 days, I get my blood drawn. I'm fascinated by more extensive blood work, um, food, how it reacts, medicine, the time that you take it, what you take it with. 
can I derive something similar from a plant-based diet, um, things like that. And I think there's great applications. Um, I have a mindfulness application. I have a fasting app on my phone. Different ways to measure my yeah. health. You're integrating technology. Yeah, and that's something that you're all about. Yes, we're all about integrating technology for a healthy future. So I've known you for a long time now, and I've seen you have an aha moment and, and take action and decide that you're going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to introduce other people to what you're doing and how you see the world shaping up health-wise. You recently got back from Hong Kong giving a lecture, and um, I'd like to hear about where you're going with your business? <laughs> yeah, so we we uh, we actually did a talk uh, interview at the Economist in Hong Kong, and and we are we are a growing uh, industry. So uh, my company is BioViva. Uh, it was uh, greatly uh, came into existence uh, because of Aiden's diabetes. Uh, the, the need to find cures for disease, uh, the need to find cures for kids. So when we were in the hospital with Aiden, I, I got to meet um, and, and see and view from a distance, in some cases, many kids that were not going to leave the hospital. I had spent two years, over two years, uh, volunteering my time for a group that was trying to educate the world about stem cell use. As a matter of fact, during the time that I was doing that, my daughter came home from school and said that... Um, they had taken a poll in her class here on Bainbridge and that most of the class, over 50% of the class, thought the use of stem cells was unethical. And this is just, you know, this is mostly a miscommunication of the media. People thought that the use of stem cells was embryonic stem cells, and they assumed that embryonic stem cells were fetuses, which absolutely isn't true. But the truth of the matter is, you know, 99% of the use of stem cells was autologous stem cells. They're from humans uh, back into the the human body for uh, the repairing uh, uh, work that they can do within the body. And so um, it was quite shocking that even in an educated area that we didn't know about that. So I'd already been immersed in regenerative medicine. Uh, We were trying to mix researchers with medical doctors, especially medical doctors offshore that were doing work that had great testimonials, but we had no idea if if it was actually relevant and what they were doing. So uh, in 2013, Aiden was diagnosed, and I saw all of these kids in the hospital that were dying of diseases. And I started asking around as to why they didn't have access to these very basic technologies, things like stem cells and biobanking and and various others. And they said, that's experimental medicine. We don't do that. Well, instead, we let people die. And um, that really is losing the biggest asset right there. Uh, So it really was a call to action. And um, I left the hospital and um, I became very active, uh, moving around, going to conferences, conferences where people from Harvard and Stanford and MIT were talking about regenerative technologies. And I was looking for cures for kids. That was essentially my mission. I ran into genetics, which we had already been dealing with with the nonprofit anyway, and was very excited about it and started to meet with people who were the heads of their fields. 
Eventually, uh, we started this company, uh, BioViva. It's a translational medicine engine uh, to work anywhere in the world where we can translate gene therapies to patients sooner than we could otherwise to start saving lives now and collecting the data. So we're a collaboration of medical researchers, uh, some of them the tops in their fields, and medical doctors. Even George Church, who's uh, the, the professor of genetics at Harvard, is one of our scientific advisors. So uh, what we're looking at is gene therapies that'll actually affect complex disease. So let me try to make this as simple as possible. Right now there's eight cures in the pipeline and some of them have already passed for monogenic disease. Monogenic disease means that a patient has a single gene mutation. There's a problem with one gene. And what gene therapy is showing is that we can knock these off one after the other. Sometimes all the patients are cured in the trials and there really are no patients to go to market with. But we're knocking these off one after another, replacing the into the cell a healthy gene cures the disease. And these kids go on to um, a healthy life. There's just a boy that was recently cured just this week. Uh, the papers came out of uh, butterfly disease, which means that his skin blisters all over it. And gene ther with gene therapy now, um, he has fully functioning skin. This would have been a deadly disease otherwise. So we're using the power of gene therapy, and we're looking at complex disease. And that would have everything to do with things like um, arthritis and uh, Crohn's disease and diabetes, which are autoimmune disease. They're complex disease. They're more than one gene is involved and the immune system. Uh, and then it would also have to do with things like aging. And that's where we get uh, the most of uh, the people who are interested in what we do uh, looking into us. So Aging diseases are, are complex diseases. They're actually caused by what we know now is 10 hallmarks of what's happening at the cellular level. So these 10 hallmarks drive what we consider biological aging, and they cause what are actually the symptoms of aging, which are Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, kidney failure. All of this is the accumulation of damage at the cellular level. Um, so I'm probably <laughs> going really far. So if you have questions, uh, feel free. <laughs> That's why we're here. When you when you first started talking about the high school kids and 50% said stem cells are unethical, do you think that stems from when they clone Dolly the sheep and George Bush took away the funding for scientific research like that and there was a fear that we were going to clone some big army and stuff? You know, I, re I remember uh, earlier that it, when stem cell started talking, I was like, w why wouldn't we do that? You know, why do we immediately go to that alternate place of negativity? Like, we're going to have this super army built from cloning. <laughs> yeah, as, as if the public's really in control of that. If that if that was a possibility, that could already happen um, so that, that's and could be the... happening. So um, the the concern, well, you know, he George Bush uh, shut down federal funding to stem cells because of embryonic uh, stem cells. He didn't want to fund that area of it anymore. There was still funding going to other stem cell research. And the cloning, cloning is a very, very different issue than stem cells. Um, it it is. Um, this is actually the the uh, genetically affecting an embryo. You know, putting the material uh, of of one creature into an embryo, and and outside of that being an 
embryonic treatment has very little to do with stem cells at all. So I think that probably things get, see, the, the thing is just what you told me right there goes to show you all the headlines it's and misinformation. how misinformation, how all everything is so misconstrued. Uh, the truth of the matter was the FDA even now is struggling with how to define stem cells. They have decided that they're a drug if they're moved to a different part of your body, if you take them from your stomach and you put them in your face, that is now considered a drug. And it's and it's all about regulating an industry. And yet we've seen um, outside of some gross negligence, very little problems with stem cells. It's literally just, you know, popping some cells in. But I, I don't want to be flippant about it. I, what I'm just trying to tell you is in, in comparison to gene therapy, it's a very um, simplistic technology with with with. Um, with uh, lower benefits, uh, gene therapy will be the ultimate uh, benefit. This will be the the programming effort uh, to make humans stay in a homeostatic state, meaning the the amount of damage accumulating in the body and the amount of repair is at an even rate for the longest amount of time. So aging, biological aging, is just the accumulation of damage. I don't know if I made that clear. The 10 hallmarks that are happening at the cellular level, like telomere attrition and mitochondrial dysfunction, Function and stem cell depletion and intracellular uh, co connections and um, extracellular um, sensing. These are all uh, just hallmarks of aging that, that happen as we get older. And what it is is just damage. So let's just call aging damage. We are more and more damaged as we age. If we use genes that are upregulated in other species, species who are able to regenerate, species who are able to live much longer than we are. We have human compatible genes to these. They're natural genes. They're, we're just turning uh, their production up. Uh, we can create that homeostasis that makes a human not get the diseases of aging. What's the difference between, um, and I, I'm trying to represent the, the common folk that doesn't know anything. I'm, I'm real good at that. Gene therapy versus gene editing. What's what exactly is the major oh, yeah. differences between those two? Yeah, so just like uh, with you know, I mean, it would take a three-hour podcast just to help people differentiate what's happening in stem cells and and um, <laughs> you know, pull those headlines out of their head and right. realize that those are completely different things that are being sort of packaged into the same area to to almost just create uh, fantasticism, and that's what the media does. It does it with our company. It does it with a lot of other companies. The, I cannot control what they write, and they continually want to conflate things and make them into high drama that, that really people just need to be educated. We do not do a good job at educating people at our school level, nor do we do it at the adult level. And the adult level is media, and we have flagrantly wasted uh, people's time, effort, and energy, and mental capacity with stories that are are taken completely out of context. Uh, so there's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have many more, because uh, I think th that's the big reason why I started this podcast, was to get more educated for myself, bring interesting people with interesting ideas on, and have a conversation, like a, a meaningful conversation that is realistic and and that can be shared with others. You know, we're passing on 
a little little bit of what we think to a lot of people this way. And well, I mean that this is this is uh, and and I will get to answering your question. This is this is the the premise of our success is that I translate from scientists to average people, and and if at any point I talk over understanding. Uh, you have to stop me um, because that's just too much exposure to the science side. My job is to make sure that everybody understands what this science is. They understand that it's not scary. They understand that it's generally safe technology, especially to things that we have comparatively on the market, and that I'm telling you the truth. Okay, so I go everywhere to find my information, and my my job is to translate the the truth to people of what's happening and where this industry is. So if if you know if at any point I say something that that speaks over the head of anyone, then stop me and and make me me go back because understanding is the most important thing. If you'd feel unintelligent after we've had a conversation, that's my fault. That's anyone's fault that talks to you because right now it's very, very important that we understand what's happening in medicine. So let's get back. So gene editing and gene therapy. What is the difference? Yeah, well, actually, gene therapy is a is an overview title. Um, it is many things uh, fall under gene therapy. So gene editing falls under gene therapy as well. The type of gene therapy that's standardly done now outside of editing is actually taking a gene, uh, the gene of that we would like to target. So, okay. Do you target bad genes or good genes or both? So I'll tell you uh, about that in a second and which technology can do each of those things. Okay, so... When we do gene therapy, uh, we look at a target gene right now that has a benefit, okay? So in basic gene therapy that's not gene editing, we look for a gene that has a benefit, a benefit for um, the repairing of damage, the, the benefit for mitochondrial function, the benefit to keep stem cell depletion from happening or help with intracellular communication or extracellular communication. Um, a, a gene that might help create uh, a world of that we don't have proteostasis happening where misfolded proteins happen uh, that cause glycation, which would be things like cataracts. Uh, but this is actually happening throughout your body. So we look for a gene that would have a benefit to the human body. And then we look at what promoter it would need. So a gene, so your whole body is everything about you is made up by your genes. And actually, it's becoming less and less an argument that even our personalities, we're, we're, we are much, much, much our genes, although our health, we know is much our environment. Okay. Um, but our long term health is more held by our genes, our short term health is held by our environment, what we eat, how we exercise, what we do. So we're looking at genes that make people healthier, regenerate faster, okay, so that they recoup that damage that they're occurring over time. We find a promoter. A promoter makes a gene transcribe. So a gene by itself won't transcribe for the protein that it makes. So all of your body is made up of proteins that your genes transcribed for. Okay, so you are just your genes, but it's the output of those genes the things that they make that make up your cell walls, that make up, you know, the, the saliva in your mouth, that, that make up um, your hormones and everything else. This, these are, come from the genes. So the promoter makes the gene transcribe. So we say we want to insert a gene into a human. We want it to transcribe many times because we need to really upregulate this. Or we say we want it to transcribe just a little bit. We only want a little bit of this. Then we put it into a capsid. 
And this is really fantastic. This is where, you know, we've always walked on the line of what is dangerous, but what can it do for us? Well, it turns out that viruses are really good at putting their genetic code in us. As a matter of fact, much of our genome is integrated human, uh, not human virus, integrated viruses over time. Okay, so we are already getting gene therapies all the time from our environment. But now we take a virus and it's essentially cannot replicate itself. We take out all of its genetic material and we put in the human gene and the promoter. And then we inject this into the body or into the tissue or into the organ that we are trying to uh, affect. And the virus capsid attaches to the, the human cell. It puts the genetic material in the genetic material starts transcribing for the protein, which then changes you, and then the viral capsid leaves your system. You essentially pee it out. Um, and that is what gene therapy is right now. Now, these genes, there's a couple types of gene therapy. There's one that you can integrate into the chromosome, and there's one, and it's called an extrachromosomal uh, gene. And with BioViva right now, that's what we do. So it never integrates into the chromosome. It sits outside the chromosome and does its business. It transcribes. Now, the problem with gene therapy in the past and the reason that there were issues is that they used to use viruses that would integrate anywhere and that could cause problems. These new, these new uh, viruses uh, don't do this. Viral vectors, they're called. They're not really viruses. They're viral vectors. They're only the capsid. Gene editing is put into the cell in the same way the same transportation module, but what it can do is actually cut the genome, cut things out, add genes into the genome, so they're going to be perfect, permanent. But, okay, so why would you use two different technologies? If you have a monogenic disease and you're not coding for the right protein, I can just do a regular gene therapy on you, put the right gene in, and it will start coding for the right, um, the right protein, and it will supersede the, the bad one. And, it, that, and that's not a theory. That's something No, this is happening. real. Oh, yeah, there's 300 and some, I think, gene therapy trials going on right now. Thousands of people have gone through gene therapy. I mean, really. And, and actually, there's two approved uh, gene therapies on the market, and there's more coming. And the FDA just approved uh, several for uh, coming up through the FDA. Most gene therapies that are being approved right now, about 50% of them are for cancer. How do you feel about the FDA? They've approved, you know, like 50-some drugs that are horrible for us. Yeah, I this this is this is the 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 place that we um, we have uh, a big issue is is regulation is regulation keeping us safe. Um, you know, right now, like I said, uh, well, I haven't said that yet, but I talked about the Children's Hospital. Over a hundred thousand people die every day. Okay, uh, that's forty million people a year, and these people are not given access to the most promising medicine. So when you're looking at a small molecule, old drugs, the drugs that we generally get prescribed to us now, uh, they go through a lot of screening because you take them in your mouth, they hit your liver, they might damage your liver, they might damage your kidneys, they have a myriad of what's called side effects. Everything's a side effect. So you're looking for positive side effects, but they also have a bunch of negative side effects. 
uh, those companies are allowed to sync much of the data. As a matter of fact, some of the most prescribed drugs in the top 10 list, some of them are only about 25% effective. And statins come with the highest risk, where they might help one in 64 people. They will give one in 10 people type 2 diabetes. They will cause dementia in a great percentage. They, they have, they have a, a greater number to harm than to help. And so the idea that going through the gold standard of regulation is, is really an idea that's out, especially when we're talking about gene therapies where we actually now are succinctly fulfilling what the cell needs and the side effects will all be the benefits of that protein. Sorry. No worries. Um, statins, though, case in point, you listen to a radio commercial or a TV commercial, and they'll introduce a drug and happy people on a cloud, and then the next 45 seconds will tell you about how you're going to die from taking that drug, and you'll, <laughs> you'll completely forget about the drug that they're advertising. Right. You know, it has serious repercussions. Yeah, and all drugs will have risk. All 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 therapies will carry risk. And just to finish with the CRISPR technology, the the beauty of it hold is on, that— Hold on, hold on. Oh, sorry. Tell everybody about— what CRISPR is, because okay. I'm really into this. Okay. Tell me. So we had talked about gene editing, and I think we got to come around and, and finish that because uh, a lot of people with uh, specific diseases out there will benefit from this um, that gene therapy initially couldn't help. So there are some diseases like Huntington's disease uh, where you actually can't just put in a good copy of a gene. As a matter of fact, the, the problem with Huntington's disease is they have a myriad of copies of the same gene over and over and over and over and over and over. And the more time you have that gene replicated in your genome, the more likely you are to get Huntington's disease. What is Huntington? Huntington's it is a, uh, that is, I actually don't have the, the definition for it, but it's a degenerative disease over time. I don't have that right in front of me. I wasn't no prepared to talk about it. Uh, but it is a degenerative disease over time. These people lose uh, their body function, and then they die, and they die relatively young. By the When they get onset, they've only got a, a few years uh, maybe to go, and so it's quite a death sentence to find out that you have it in your body. CRISPR allows us to actually cut those genes potentially out. And so the, the ability to cut genes is a really powerful tool. So when we can't fix the gene with a healthy copy of another gene, we need to cut the gene out and edit it. Another benefit of CRISPR technology is to actually modulate the genome. So when we look at longevity studies, we have to remember we have actually extended the lifespan of worms by 11 times and flies by six and fish by four and mice by five times. And we've done it all through modulation. So if we can modulate the genome with a technology like CRISPR, we have the potential benefit of, of a sustained healthy life. And remember, these organisms lived healthy healthy, much longer life, and then died in shorter period of time. And that, that was what, that's what you would hope for any organism. But CRISPR itself is an editing technology that came from bacteria. So the world is covered with bacteria. I mean, the bacteria outstrip us in numbers by oh, magnitudes of, you know, 10 to the. And um, it just so, tur so turns out that they have a, a huge environment of uh, macrophages. So they have a whole war in battle 
battle going on every day. And macrophages are these uh, virus uh, that get onto a bacteria and they put in their genetic material and they take over the bacteria. They use it to basically replicate themselves a myriad of time. Then the cell, the bacteria lyses and here's a bunch more viruses, right? So bacteria actually learned to get a leg up on these macrophages and destroy them. So when a macrophage uh, attacks many, let's say a thousand bacteria, maybe 10 or 15 of them will live and it's because they have a, a genetic system that will actually cut up some of the uh, macrophages uh, DNA and then essentially kill the macrophage and then integrate a small portion of the macrophage's DNA so that it becomes resistant to it every time it's attacked. So with this cut, snip, and repaste, that's what CRISPR is, we have the technology now, <laughs> thanks to bacteria, using their enzymes to now cut out and, and paste in genes or just cut out or modulate. For instance, take promoters uh, and um, take repressors off of genes and turn them on or maybe even repress other genes. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me what consensual um, gene therapy is. <laughs> what is consent? So you know what consent is. It means that I consent uh, to do this. I consent to be here for this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, now you have that that verbally. Um, yeah. This is the, the active use of gene therapy by consent, giving humans the human right to participate in gene therapy that they could not maybe get uh, anywhere else. I want to talk more about this. Need to take a quick moment to thank my sponsors. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206 842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com All right. Thank you. We're back with Elizabeth Parrish. Um, tell me how you got this nickname Patient Zero and uh, what this consent really means um, in layman's ter terms for everyone. Okay, you've been doing your homework. Uh, <laughs> this is home. I, I usually come home to be uh, very quiet and um, and uh, and not be bothered by things. Uh, so probably a lot of people in the community don't know. You would actually have to look at what BioViva does to know why I'm called Patient Zero. Uh, but then again, we're a long ways into a podcast, and 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 many people will flake. <laughs> not listen to this point. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm Patient Zero. So in 2015, to launch the company, um, I took uh, the company's two gene therapies. I took its its first combinatorial therapy to treat biological aging. And um, it was a very exciting time. Uh, we, uh, I took uh, essentially, I think at that point, more gene therapy than had ever been taken by, by a human uh, to see if this first combinatorial therapy against biological aging that had a huge promise to help children as well uh, could in fact reverse some of the biological aging in my body and therefore give confidence to the world that it was time to move forward. Why? 
Why did I take it? Uh, one of the gene therapies has a safety and efficacy profile. It's a myostatin inhibitor. It essentially increases your muscle mass. Uh, the second one didn't, but it's the most promising gene therapy right now to treat biological aging on the planet. It's the, a gene therapy called the telomerase inducer. Uh, it has reversed aging in animal models. And in, I mean every form of aging, even the brain. Uh, it has reversed aging in human cells. It's, it's one of the ways that we safely, without doing cancer, uh, create immortal cell lines, cells that will divide over and over but die, uh, in a, it, that, which is called apoptose in a healthy way. Uh, it, it has shown promise to reverse uh, many diseases, uh, not only in humans but in children. Uh, one group will actually try to move this forward with children with progeria. Uh, progeria is accelerated aging in children. Um, progeria is a lambda A uh, gene defect, but it throws off progerin, and what happens is the telomeres become very short in the patient. So what are telomeres? Telomeres are the ends of the caps of your chromosomes, and you're, you're conceived with about 15,000 base pairs. You're born with 10,000, and you die with 5,000. We know that the um, your catastrophic diagnosis Diagnosis will happen at about the point that you have only 5,000 base pairs left. Although telomeres can stay, <coughs> sorry, although telomeres can stay short for uh, many, many years in your life. So they are not actually something that we can use to tell exactly how old you are, but we can use them as a gross assessment of how close you probably are to a diagnosis. So telomeres get shorter every time your cells divide. So every species has what's called a Hayflick limit. How many cells can this organism's cells divide until the organism dies? So bowhead wells live to 250 years, and we actually see that their cell division is in a magnitude that supports that. Human cells, 50 to 60 divisions, uh, equate to our 120 years if we lived perfectly that that human lifespan could can exist in. Uh, mice, same things. Mice actually have long telomeres, but it's not about the length of the telomere. It's about the attrition over time. They can only live for approximately three years. So when when telomeres were extended in mice, it extended their lifespan. So this is this is one of the things we look at in human cells. When we extend telomeres, this is what it does. So when we do a telomerase gene therapy, it creates um, the gene creates the protein called telomerase, and that helps your telomeres grow back. And so this is scientifically proven, but how to get it to work in a whole human body is speculative. Um, how to, what titration, meaning the amount of the gene therapy that we'll need is speculative. I did a lot of gene therapy and we now know that I would need much more. And we don't know that we can reverse aging to a 20 year old, but this is what we see in culture. This is what we see in human skin tissue. Clearly you're looking at me and I would need a lot more of the therapy, but this is, this is the learning stage. And this is a very exciting stage of this technology. So that gene therapy is the most promising it's been in research for 15 years. It has thousands of papers uh, written on it. It, it's, it, um, it shows the most immediate promise, and it hits the most hallmarks of aging. Maybe, maybe not all of them. We know it will be a, a combinatorial therapy that will actually defeat the diseases of aging. But um, it had no human data on it as, as 
what we call in vivo human data. It had human cell data. It had almost every tissue of the body. It had regenerated heart tissue, skin tissue, organ tissue uh, of various organs. Uh, it needed a safety profile. And, uh, you know. Is that you? That was me. And is this something that was like injected into your body and yes. continuing to seek this treatment? And you had to go out of the country for this, correct? Yeah. So when you do gene therapy, uh, we call them permanent for a lifetime. Although with a gene therapy where you're trying to transduce the whole body, you would probably need to get it done a multitude of times. Uh, as far as the cells that it targets, it will live for the lifetime of those cells. But whether those cells are stem cells or daughter cells, daughter cells won't last as long. Um you know, this, these are these are the things that we need to uh, sort out, and we need to uh, expedite the use of this gene therapy for humans. It it has the most promise. So, in one fell swoop, I could essentially pioneer technology that may help the world. Whether my company is successful or not, it doesn't really matter. I would like to see our children not suffer from the same diseases that we do. I would like to see our children not suffer from the things that they do right now. So it was the biggest impact that I could possibly have in my lifetime at that point. And we have gone on to create bigger and bigger impacts. And those will be actually getting those technologies to other people. So this is like accelerating medicine through bypassing the animal testing and going uh, straight to All the to animal humans? testing, it's, it's called meta-analysis. So the animal testing has been done with those those gene therapies. What we, we're not really good at is translating things to humans. So let's put things in perspective, and let's just put this in like a year-long uh, trail. Or we, let's talk actually disease-specific. So if we look at disease-specific, if you scour all of the papers that are ever put out for, let's say, just one part of diabetes, there's about two million papers. But what actually translates to humans is very low. It's very risk adverse, and getting these therapies moved forward is very hard to do. So we call it bioethics. We say, oh, we have to be very ethical, and we 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 shouldn't um, we shouldn't put patients at risk, but we let patients die. So you know, this is it's a real humans' right area. So I believe in your right to take therapeutics. I believe in your right to extend your life, and I also believe in your right to die when you're done. Uh, and these are, these, are t these are ideas that we need to move into. So the idea of a consensual gene therapy is the idea that you consent, that you're using a non-regulated therapy, but you are doing it under the information that you have, that you have been, you are knowledgeable on the therapeutic, you understand the outcome, you understand the risk. Yeah, kind of like your last will and testament. You're saying that I'm of sound body and mind, and I choose to do this. I choose to end my life at this time. I choose to try alternative sources. Yeah. Um, I choose to try to fuel my body through plant-based diet and um, get the rewards of the yeah. So, for instance, implant. like you know, you and I could go skydiving, and we would only have to sign a one-page form. Yeah, you know, and yet <laughs> to take a gene therapy, you know, you'll be signing uh, much documentation and going through much educational understanding of of what what you will be participating in. What where's the tipping point to make that happen? How how are we going to change the paradigm and say that we need to have a different way of thinking when it comes to medicine? Yeah. Well, there's a couple ways to do that. Uh, well, there, there's three ways to do that. And they all, but they all 
lay in education. So educating people about the benefits, the risks of how you live today, uh, that you're guaranteed right now to die of biological aging. We've all decided as a society, we've all come together, we put money into curing Alzheimer's, we've put money into curing cancer, we put money into curing heart disease, one of the biggest killers uh, in this country, right? We have decided to cure these diseases independently. What we know now, what science knows now, and anyone can go and look, uh, the papers that come out now realize where these are coming from. They're coming from cellular degeneration. They're coming from the 10 hallmarks of the things that happen over time to our cells. So the best thing that we can do now is go in and target those. And actually, companies are, are, are poking up all over the place that essentially do what BioViva is, is looking to do, but they just don't call it tackling aging. Uh, they'll call it tackling arthritis or, or tackling very uh, specific modalities of, of biological aging, certain diseases like Alzheimer's. But what they're really going after is what's happening at the cellular level, biological aging. So when do you believe that aging is a disease? Yeah, I believe that the 10 things that are happening at the cellular level as the popu population is educated will actually be called diseases. Glycation will be called a disease. Mitochondrial dysfunction will be called a disease. Telomere attrition will be called a disease. Those are the actual diseases. Things like Alzheimer's are symptoms. Why do you think that we can't cure it? Because we're batting at the downstream effects of old cells. I mean, how long are you going to battle with cells that aren't even functioning well anymore, that don't have the ability to get a leg up on the disease that they are presenting? It's because of the cell is old and it is unable to do that. So anything is just going to be an intervention at symptoms except for these new uh, technologies that will actually address it. And so, so education is one thing. Uh, to tell people what mm -hmm. in, in common practice is a way to take care of your own cells. Like I, I feel like the body's made of water and that you need to constantly be giving it water. Is there something that we can do um, naturally in our everyday that helps? Right. So there are, there cells? are. Number one, don't smoke. Uh, smoking cigarettes uh, definitely takes six to 12 years off of your lifespan. As a matter of fact, we've seen that in, in global data. So if you look at data around the world, it, the cessation of smoking is what has created the biggest increase of lifespan in recent uh, years. It's six to 12 years if you stop smoking. Uh, smoking is kind of exponentially bad. The more you smoke, the, the shorter your life is going to be. And, and the more that we can actually show in those bodies, like if there's twins, there's one twin that smokes and there's one that doesn't, you can actually see the, if the ravages of aging. Aging is, a, is both external, we can see it in every wrinkle we have and in every gray hair, but it's actually internal. We can see it in brain scans, muscle scans, and tissue scans. Uh, so stop smoking. Uh, the second thing is be very careful in your car. Cars are becoming uh, safer technology all the time. Exercise and eat right. I can't tell you that there's the right amount of water to drink because everybody is a little bit different, but you should definitely be having good, clean sources of water uh, and you should be eating right. And, and it turns out the older we get, probably the less we need to eat. So during growth and development, we need lots of calories, but uh, something that's kind of closer to a calorie restriction, but not. I'm not a big proponent of 
calorie restriction. Actually holding weight on your body is an important thing, but not excessive weight. Obesity shortens your lifespan. Having a natural good weight, uh, exercising, eating right, are really essential to maximizing the health span that you would naturally have. If you want to extend beyond that, if you don't want to, you, you will still get the diseases of aging, you will just suffer from them from less period of time than your counterparts who don't take care of themselves. And that could be eight to 10 years. So that is definitely worth doing. But if we wanna break the bottleneck, if we wanna leave a world uh, to our children that doesn't have these diseases that we're dying from now, gene therapy is is where we will go to cure those diseases. Awesome. Um, I got a little segment here called the Fast Five where I'm going to ask you five questions kind of randomly and you will answer them as fast as you can. Oh, boy. You ready for this? Oh, no. Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five, Fast Five. What's the difference between being alive and truly living? Ah, that that is something that I would know. Um, I think that before I got involved in doing something that I thought was high value for the world, I was alive. I think that I lived within a lot of fear. I lived in a box uh, that I needed to break out of. I feared this. I was risk averse about that. I was worried about the next thing. And actually going out and educating myself and taking bigger risks, risks makes me feel more alive. I am actually living now. Well said. Yes, you are. At 90, what will matter most to you? At 90, what will matter most to me is that while I was healthy, that we made the biggest move that we possibly could, that we started saving lives with these therapeutics, that we started maybe in people's uh, first opinion as, oh my gosh, unregulated technology, but we were the people who brought the technology to the world that ended up and ending these diseases. That will matter to me the most. Not selfish little things, not the memes that people tell you, oh, I wish I would have spent more time doing this or doing that. This is your life. This is your impact. You're healthy now. You better make a run for the future for all of humanity now, because when you're 90, if we're unsuccessful, you will not have the energy or the wit to do so. Well said. Is there such a thing as perfect? No. What would you never do? I hate to, I could not even go there because I think that we don't even know ourselves. And the minutes we say that we would never do something, we we might just turn around and do it. I, I would say 10 years ago, I would have not thought that I would have gotten up and taken a gene therapy to try to pioneer science for the world. I would have never considered that I would get on a stage and talk to a thousand people at a time. I could, I would have said I couldn't do that. So I, I, I will, I will not tell you what I would never do. Awesome. Lastly, what impact will you leave on this planet? I don't know. I think, you know, we're trying to write that future. I mean, that's what you do. The future isn't written, uh, only history. And so we're trying to write that future. And I hope that it's good. I hope that it's something that everyone benefits from, whether I, I like them or like what they do or not. I want people to benefit from what we do. Um, 
I don't know what it'll be, but we are trying to write that. With any with any luck, it'll be that we create uh, the basis of cures that, that go on to uh, make it so the world doesn't suffer from the diseases that it suffers from now, that children don't have to be sick. And if I live long enough, I hope that I'm able to make a great impact on the environment as well. Awesome. What do you got going down the pipeline here in the near future to end the year with? Well, what we've got going on right now is we're starting to open clinics. We're asking to run trials in various places in the world uh, so that we have a, a very transparent trial, like trials that have never happened before where third parties are involved in analysis. And, um, you know, again, we get back to the regulatory uh, scheme of things. Money does not equal safety. It, it never has. If I just had a billion dollars, I could just keep passing that money around until I get through regulations. We want safe drugs that do the right thing, and we want to find all of the technology that will solve the problem. So uh, what we're doing in the next year is we we are doing something a little different. Last year, we were talking to a lot of regulators and asking, and this year we're moving forward. Do you find your business uh, research or technology-driven? We are actually, we're both. Uh, we will be research-driven, but right now we're, we're very much technology-driven. I have a vision uh, that is very different than anyone else's, that we can actually start using biotechnology-like technology. So you know, um, in our home, we're programmers, uh, software programmers. And so I have been immersed in software for the last 20-some years. I would like to see biotechnology being traded like technology. I would like to see that open access. I would like to see that expeditious route, especially to the most terminally ill, so that we can get data for the rest of the population. And I will do anything I can to make that happen. Awesome. Um, so where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Uh, so you could come to the website. It's uh, bioviva, B-I-O-V-I-V-A-science.com. Uh, that's a good place to start. And then, of course, you know, I think everyone in the company has a, a Facebook site and stuff like that. Mine's Liz Parrish, uh, P-A-R-R-I-S-H. Um, it's it's uh, essentially updated uh, with things that I do. It's not a lot of personal stuff. I think... Right now, I may change my mind. Again, I never say I won't do something, but I, I like to keep the personal out of it. We're a non-borders con uh, company. We're non-political. We believe that if the world worked together, if we could work as an organism, we could solve these problems. Uh, we will work anywhere in the world. Uh, we will help anyone that we can. Uh, I don't like to get hotly contested into the drama that media causes, and I suggest that other people don't do it either. Um, because we really don't know uh, the full story in, in, in many things. And right now, politics is a uh, terrible thing. And <laughs> but, you know, I don't you know, it really in, in some sources, it gets better and worse. But, you know, I, I keep up on the news, but I, I don't want to have an opinion right now. What we're trying to do is is create new technology for the world. And um, Opinions are a dime a dozen. Uh, facts are, are hard and rare to find, and we're trying to find the facts. Well, Elizabeth Parrish, thank you for coming in and having a conversation with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, will you come back sometime and talk some more? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if obviously we'll talk <laughs> yeah. many times, but if, if people really want to hear more, um, I can go for hours. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love it. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Good to be here. Thank you so much. And that's it for The Bystander today.